0: find your place with me in your Bible at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are in this series. This is our 29th message in this series. And I told you that we were going to slow down in chapter 15 because there's just so much richness in chapter 15 uh, that I I don't want us to pass by it quickly. But I want to read the first 11 verses again with you. I read them last week. I want to read them again this week. I'll read them again the following week, beginning in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James then by all the apostles then then, then last of all he was seen by me also as by one born out of due season. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God but by the grace of God I am what I am. Don't you love that phrase by the grace of god i am what i am and his grace toward me was not in vain but i labored more abundantly than they all yet not i but the grace of god which was with me four or five years ago andy stanley wrote a new book andy stanley is the son of charles stanley uh, he is an author he is a pastor of one of the largest churches in america He's written a number of books. I've read two or three of them, most of them on the subject of leadership, that I have enjoyed. But this particular book that came out four or five years ago was very controversial. It created a lot of of, uh, people talking about what he discussed and what he had to say, talking about it negatively, looking at it in a negative uh, way. Well, I decided to buy the book for myself and to read it for myself. You know, sometimes people, uh, you know, they they interpret something and they don't really read it for what it says. They interpret it and they get sort of bent out of shape quickly. Uh, So I I decided to buy the book for myself and and I bought it. And I I read through the entire book. I read it a couple of times. And I will tell you that there are a lot of controversial things in the book. Uh, There are things that you and I might not agree with. But there are also some good things in the book. And it's like anything else when you're reading, you take the good and you leave the bad. My mother always taught me to eat the meat and leave the bone. And there's a, there's, there's a lot of meat that's in that book, and I, I took some of that meat. But in that book that he wrote about five years ago, he begins in the introduction by telling a story that took place with he and his son when they made a trip to China. And I want to read that story to you. It's very pertinent by way of introducing to you the message today. And I think you'll see the significance of it in, in just a few moments. There's three or four paragraphs in length. And I don't want you to check out on me. I want you to stay with me. But I want you to listen to what he has to say as he begins his book. In 2007, my son Andrew, who was 13 at the time, accompanied me on a trip to China During our visit, we were invited to tour an American-owned leather goods factory. The owner was a friend of a friend. When When we arrived, he graciously insisted on serving as our guide. Before we began the tour, he introduced us to a Chinese girl in her 20s who had worked her way from the factory floor into management. He asked if we would be okay if she shadowed us during the tour. Two hours later, we were back in his office for a quick recap. As we wrapped up, he asked, "'Does anyone have any questions?' To all our surprise, raising her hand to shoulder level, our shadow spoke up. "'I have a question,' she said. Turning to me, she asked, "'Are you a pastor?' I had no idea where this was going. I had not introduced myself as a pastor." I wasn't even sure it was okay that I was a pastor. We were in China. For all I knew, she was a government plant assigned to follow us around all afternoon. Yes, I said, I'm a pastor. What she said next in her broken English, beautiful broken English caused the hair to stand up on the back of my neck. How good is good enough I recognize your voice. I was stunned. How Good is Good Enough is the title of a little book I had recently published. The manuscript was based on a message I had preached years earlier. She continued, Two years ago, someone gave me a CD of your sermon, How Good is Good Enough. I listened to it over and over. Then I asked Jesus to save me and live inside me before I was empty now I am full if you think I made this up I don't blame you I have witnesses she went on I wanted to go to church but there are no churches in my city I began attending a bible study in an apartment close to where I live sometimes I ride the bus to church but it's two hours and I'm always late The bus ticket is expensive, and I don't know anyone at the church. Andy Stanley writes I was both honored and humbled, but she wasn't finished. Looking to her boss, she said, Can I ask the pastor another question? He nodded. Pastor, she said, Why doesn't everyone in America go to church? I still haven't recovered from her question. I had no idea how to respond I still don't how do you explain thousands of empty churches to a young lady who would ride two hours to attend a church in another town a young lady who would be there every time the door was opened I don't remember how I responded I said something entirely forgettable but I haven't forgotten her question It's bothered me ever since. So why doesn't everybody in America go to church? Why is the church so resistible? Jesus wasn't. And then he goes on in the remainder of the book to talk about the centrality and the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That it is because of the resurrection of Jesus that the message we proclaim is so incredibly powerful and so incredibly irresistible. If Jesus rose from the dead, he is who he said he is. He did what he said he did, and he will do what he said he will do. Do you realize that both Jesus as well as the Old Testament predicted that he would rise from the dead? This matter of his resurrection is the compelling reason. It is the compelling reason why we believe in him as our savior. If he's dead, he's just a martyr. He's a martyr for a great cause, but he's not the savior. But because he rose from the dead, we are compelled to believe in Jesus. This resurrection of Jesus is so important that it is the very means of our justification. Don't let the word justification scare you. It's just a way of saying how we're made right with God. The resurrection of Jesus is the means by which we are made right with God. Yes, there had to be his death and his burial, but without the resurrection, there is no power in what he accomplished on the cross. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for." our justification. It's only a living Savior that can change people's lives. It's only a living Savior who can make you a child of God. It is only a living Savior who can impart to you the gift of eternal life. It is only a living Savior who can credit to your account the payment that he made for your sins. Only the living Savior. And I, I want you to know by way of beginning today that if Jesus is alive, as I contend that he is, as I believe the evidence shows he is, if Jesus is alive, well, I just want you to know that that one powerful fact changes everything. That one powerful fact changes everything. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The resurrection of Jesus and the power of that resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul gives to us a long chapter that deals with resurrection. In the city of Corinth, there were those who didn't believe in the resurrection, they saw the body as a prison. Why would you want to resurrect the body? Why would anybody want their bodies to be resurrected from the grave? They saw it as a prison from which they wanted to be delivered. But if there is no resurrection, Paul will argue in this chapter, then there is no resurrection of Jesus. And if there is no resurrection of Jesus, there is no hope for any of us. We are all lost in our sins. And so he's dealing with a problem that was going on with a false message amongst some of those who were in the city of Corinth. Actually, this entire letter is what Paul is doing. They had written to him and they had said, Paul, here are some things we need your advice on. We need your instruction about. That's why we call this series, Dear Paul. It's a letter they wrote to him. And Paul writes back, giving the instruction, obviously under the inspiration of God, but giving the instruction of how they are supposed to address these different issues that are amongst them. And one of them is the denial of the resurrection of Jesus, and the denial of any resurrection at all. Paul will come, and in these 58 verses, he will talk specifically about the centrality of the resurrection. In these opening verses that I read to you a few moments ago, we begin with what we call the particulars of the gospel. We talk about the gospel, but a lot of times people don't know the particulars of the gospel. Two of those we saw last week. One of them is in verse 3. Christ died. You want to circle the word died. He died for our sins. The second is found down in verse 4. He was buried. He was buried. We talked about those two last week. But then the third is that he rose again the third day. He rose again the third day. That's what we're talking about today. And then four times... Verse 5, 6, and 7, it says he was seen, he was seen, he was seen, he was seen. Think with me for a few moments as we talk about the particulars of the gospel. He was dead and he was buried. Can you imagine what it must have been like for the apostles who had given up three years of their lives to follow him and to go with him everywhere, to hear him, to see him, to watch him ministering to people, to witness the miracles that had had been done. Can you imagine what it was like when they saw him crucified and then they saw him buried? In those moments, their hope was completely gone. Discouragement and despondency settled in over them. They did not yet believe in the resurrection either. And they did not know what to do except to cower away in fear. You remember Peter Three times, Peter denies that he even knows the Lord. He lies three times. that He he doesn't even know the Lord Jesus. He's never been with him. He's never heard him. He doesn't know who he is. And these men, now that he's been crucified and that he's been buried, they're cowering away, scared to death. What's going to happen to us? What's next for us? If they could kill him, what will they do to us? Bill Gaither caught some of the emotion of what the disciples and even his mother Mary might have been feeling. When you hear these words, I can hear Guy Penrod singing this in my mind. But listen to the words as Bill Gaither gives them. They all walked away with nothing to say. They just lost their dearest friend. All that he said, now he was dead. So this was the way it would end. The dreams they had dreamed were not what they seemed. Now that he was dead and gone, the garden, the jail, the hammer, the nail, how could a night be so long? The angel, the star, the kings from afar, the wedding, the water, the wine. Now it was done, they'd taken her son, wasted before his time. She knew it was true. She'd watched him die too. She'd heard them call him just a man, but deep in her heart, she knew from the start somehow her son would live again. And between each of those verses of despair that you can hear in the words, between each of those verses, Bill Gaither writes, then came the morning, night turned into day, The stone was rolled away. Hope rose with the dawn. Then came the morning. Shadows vanished before the sun. Death had lost and life had won for morning had come. And aren't we thankful that Jesus rose from the grave? Do you realize that there are plenty of skeptics that don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead? All you have to do is go to your computer and type in the resurrection of Jesus In our modern world, our young people are able to do this. And you'll find lots of sites that give the authenticating evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. And you'll find lots of sites that deny the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. There used to be a group called the Jesus Seminar. It was founded by Dr. Robert Funk. It was a gathering of scholarly people who would look at the gospel stories and they would vote on whether this was really something Jesus said or not, whether it was really something Jesus did or not. Can you imagine? This is what Dr. Robert Funk said about the resurrection of Jesus. Just listen to his words. The tales of entombment and resurrection were latter-day wishful thinking. Instead, Jesus' corpse went the way of all abandoned criminals' bodies. It was probably barely covered with dirt, vulnerable to the wild dogs that roamed the wasteland of the execution grounds. And you can find that in plenty of sites, on plenty of sites, on the internet. Marcus Borg was another member of that Jesus seminar. Another was Thomas Sheehan, and there are hundreds of them who just simply deny the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. One of the most famous was a man that was one of our founding fathers. His name was Thomas Jefferson. That's a name that we all studied in history. It's a name we all learned in school. That's a name we all know well. But did you know that Thomas Jefferson took a Bible with the Gospels and he cut up the Gospels and he pasted it into another book that became known as the Jefferson Bible I've shown you pictures of it before, the Jefferson Bible. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't believe the Bible was the inspired Word of God. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Savior of the world. But he thought he taught some good, moral, ethical things that ought to be learned by everybody. So he cut out the portions he agreed with. He pasted it into what he called his Bible, the Jefferson Bible, and that was what he read. That's what he studied. That's what he thought about. And the very last line of the Jefferson Bible says this. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulchre and departed. The end. For him, that's it. And for many people, that's it. That's it before even looking at the evidence. That's it before even thinking through the evidence. That's it. Great moral, ethical teacher, somebody that we might want to emulate with our lives, but he's not the Messiah and he's not the Savior and he didn't rise from the dead. Why in the world would we ever want to believe in him? Can I just tell you that that's not what the Bible that you hold in your hands teaches you? The Bible that you hold in your hands teaches you that Jesus rose from the grave. He died, he was buried, he rose again, and he was seen, and he was seen, and he was seen, and he was seen. seen. There was a documentary done by ABC where they asked both liberal and conservative scholars about early Christianity, scholars that are in the, the, the study of early Christianity, And they wanted to know about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And, you know, if you're listening to a liberal scholar, they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Some of them don't even believe that Jesus existed. If you listen to a conservative scholar, you understand that they believe that Jesus died, just as he said, according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he rose again, and that he was seen, and that he was seen, that he was seen, and that he was seen. But amazingly, at the end of this documentary, if you saw it, I saw it, the end of this documentary it's, it's amazing that the last thing that they leave you with it, it comes from a new testament scholar her name is paula fredrickson uh, she is a distinguished professor or was a distinguished professor at boston university in religion she is not a christian she is not a believer herself but the documentary ends with a quote from her listen to the quote she says I know in their own terms, what they saw was the raised Jesus. Duh. That's what they say. And then all, all the historic evidence we have afterwards attest to their conviction that that's what they saw. Now, that would have been great if she would just stopped right there. But like so many intellectuals, she says, i'm not saying that they really did see the raised jesus i wasn't there i don't know what they saw and then she concludes but i do know that as a historian that they must have seen something how stupid and if your kids are listening to me forgive me for that word kids You can be intellectually dumb and the evidence be right in front of you and yet you deny it in spite of it it's amazing isn't it that would be a little bit like saying that when this service is dismissed somebody comes to interview you and they say to you let me ask you a question were you in the service on that sunday morning that pastor lemming was supposed to have preached oh yeah i was there where'd you park i parked my my normal spot where'd you sit sit my normal spot who sat around you what are their names got got all their names who'd you talk to coming in who'd you talk to going out what were the songs that were sung on that day and you start talking about the songs that were sung that day what time did the service begin what time did the service end always later than you wanted it to <laughs> probably a little earlier today so you can go back and get the book on Revelation. (laughs) What time did the service end? And they interview you. They interview dozens of you, dozens of you. And they say, I don't know whether David Lemming was there that morning preaching or not. I'm not sure he was there in person or not. I know this is what they say actually occurred, but I don't know for certain because I wasn't there myself. How dumb can you be? You mean dozens and dozens of you just saw a hologram? You just saw a hallucination? And here is this supposed scholar saying, I don't know what they saw. I wasn't there. I can't really tell you for certain what it was that they were witnessing, but I can tell you as a historian that they saw something. Yeah, you know what they saw? They saw the resurrected Jesus. She admits that the best available historical evidence confirms that the followers of Jesus were absolutely convinced that they saw the crucified Jesus alive and raised from the dead. People like Mary Magdalene and James, the half-brother of Jesus, or Peter, or all of the other disciples, excluding Judas, of course, or even one of his enemies, Paul. They all witnessed it. They all saw it they were all with him. They were all aware of it. They all heard him. He was alive in the preponderance of the evidence. You heard that term in a legal setting? The preponderance of the evidence rests on the side of his resurrection. Think about the eyewitness testimonies. One after another, tells us the story of Jesus' resurrection. Speak specifically, if you will, about the gospel stories. They tell us in detail the, uh, the details of the resurrection of Jesus. Or think about the empty tomb. I mean, if Jesus didn't really rise, just go find the grave and find his body. You say, oh, but pastor, they would have carried his body away. Now, you remember what the Bible says? That his grave clothes were there. The napkin laying over, placed around his face, was folded up and laid to the side. They couldn't produce a body because there was no body. All they could have produced were the grave clothes in which he was buried. Or think about the transformation of the disciples. I mean, these men who were cowering and afraid for what was going to happen to them next they become the very ones that god uses with boldness to bring into existence his church and to cause it to spread across the world or think about the belief of the skeptics that were around jesus how about doubting thomas he said i'll not believe that jesus is alive unless i can see him and i can touch him and what did jesus offer him to do gave him the opportunity to do just to do just that very thing or think about his own family, James, his half-brother. Do you realize that none of the half-brothers of Jesus uh, or, or half-sisters of Jesus, that none of them believed in Jesus until the resurrection occurred? None of them believed he was the Messiah, the Savior, until the resurrection occurred. And James becomes a central character in the early church. Or consider Paul, who was then known as Saul. He's a virulent enemy of Christianity. He has no reason to lie about the resurrection of Jesus, and yet he was changed on the Damascus Road and became the most powerful witness, the most powerful missionary probably ever known aside from Jesus himself, the most powerful missionary about the resurrection of Jesus. Or consider the emergence of historic Christianity. Christianity, 2,000 years later, still stands on the cornerstone of his resurrection. Or think about the absence of any naturalistic explanations. You know the guys in the white coats that are in the laboratories trying to reproduce everything? The scientists? They can't reproduce the resurrection of Jesus. They can't explain it away. And the reason is because it was supernatural. That's why. I got news for you. Scientists are limited They can do what the natural can do. They can't do what the supernatural can do. Or think about the shortness of time between the actual event and the eyewitness claims. Another distinguished scholar of the New Testament, James Dunn, writes, This tradition of Jesus' resurrection and appearances, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as tradition within months, within months of Jesus' death. I mean, there's no way that the early followers of Jesus could have developed their unity of messaging in such a short amount of time unless they were telling the truth. It takes years for embellishments and myths and legends to develop. They have to develop over time into a consistent storyline. But from the very beginning, there was a consistent storyline Jesus is alive, Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus is not dead. Jesus came forth out of the tomb. One of the foremost scholars today of dealing with the resurrection is a man by the name of Gary Habermas. He's got a number of books related to this subject. The one that I have and I enjoy is called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. And in that book, he uses what he calls minimal facts, the minimal facts. To prove the resurrection of Jesus. And he does so in a convincing fashion. One author said, to a great extent, uh, to a greater extent than it is anything else, Christianity is a religion of the resurrection. Or, or John Locke, the famous British philosopher, said, our Savior's resurrection is truly of great importance in Christianity, so great that his being or not being the Messiah stands or falls with it. Do you hear what I'm saying? I mean, there are lots of people who have looked at the evidence, the preponderance of the evidence, and they come to the conclusion, Jesus is alive. Jesus came forth out of the grave. Paul said that Jesus was raised. Peter said it too. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell us that Jesus rose from the grave. Uh, The apostles preached the resurrection of Jesus throughout the book of Acts. The beginning of the church and the expansion of the church, the message of the resurrection is found again and again. Think on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, when the church was birthed into existence. What was it that Peter was preaching on that day? In essence, he said, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. He preached the gospel. He preached the resurrection of Jesus. Or you get all the way toward the end of the book of Acts, and you get to Acts 26, and you have Paul telling Agrippa that Jesus had brought salvation to the Jews and the Gentiles by reason of his suffering and his resurrection from the dead. Do you get it? All of the followers of Jesus told the story of the resurrection of Jesus. He rose from the grave. He rose from the grave. There's a lot of things I might not understand or fully comprehend, but I can tell you this, he's alive. I saw him. We were with him. He's alive. You realize that that's the consistent message throughout history, throughout the centuries, the followers of Jesus have proclaimed and believed in the resurrection of Jesus. Even when you get to the reformers, Those who are Lutherans today, do you know that Martin Luther believed in the resurrection? Or those that are Presbyterians, do you understand that John Calvin and John Knox preached that Jesus was raised? Or those that are Methodists, do you not understand that John and Charles Wesley proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus? As a matter of fact, we sing one of his hymns sometimes on Easter. Christ the Lord is risen today alleluia charles spurgeon when it comes to us baptists maybe the best known baptist preacher there is preached the resurrection and i can go on ad infinitum that way i mean from the very beginning those who were there to witness it and see it for themselves who saw him who touched him, who were with him, all the way through history, they've preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, I want to tell you something. I wouldn't listen to a preacher nor attend his church if he didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Actually, let me just take that one step further. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ... You have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. There is no salvation apart from that resurrection. No salvation apart from it. Romans 10, 9 says that if we confess with our mouths the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. You have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. There is no Christian. If you're sitting here today and say, well, I I follow the tenets of Jesus. Well, you're like Thomas Jefferson. You're not a true Christian. If, If you don't believe that Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and that he rose again, and that he was seen, 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 then you don't really have true faith. You don't have true salvation in your life. I mean, if Jesus isn't alive from the dead... Do you realize what Paul says in chapter 15? Look at it, verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. Look at verse 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Or look at verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Do you hear what Paul says? If you are following a Jesus that didn't rise from the grave, you are pitiable. Poor, deluded people. You have no hope if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. The resurrection of Jesus is the consistent theme of the entire New Testament. 18 of the 27 new testament books mention the resurrection of jesus and the others imply it though they don't specifically mention it i don't need to mention to you matthew or mark or luke or john or the book of acts because obviously you see it over and over in those books but listen romans 1 4 he's declared to be the son of god by the resurrection from the dead Or all of these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 or 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 14 where it says, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus. Or Galatians 1.1 that says, God the Father who raised him from the dead. Or Ephesians 1.20 that says, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at at his right hand. Or Philippians 3.10, it says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Or Colossians 2.12, it says, You also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Or 1 Thessalonians 1.10, where we're to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Or 2 Timothy 2.8, that says, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Or Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up, brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, or 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope, or Revelation 1:18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Somebody should shout. I mean, these authors weren't confused about the resurrection of Jesus. And they were all convinced that Jesus was alive and that he rose from the dead. And please hear me as I said at the beginning, if Jesus is alive, that changes everything. Your nominal Christianity isn't going to cut it. Your indifferent obedience isn't going to be acceptable. Your cold-heartedness toward God's church and the gathering of his believers, he's not going to wink at if he's alive. That changes everything. And we need to stop and remember that Jesus is alive say, Pastor, you realize it's not Easter Sunday morning, don't you? Whenever the death, the burial, the resurrection, and being seen is no longer the acceptable message in a church, that church has started to die. The resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone of who we are. It is one of the four pillars on which the gospel stands. He was dead. He was buried. He rose again. He was seen. That's the four pillars of the gospel. You may give a definition that's larger than that when you talk about the gospel. We'll, we'll look at that next week. But the, follow, the, the bottom line is the core of the gospel is made up of those four pillars. He, was, he, he died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. And he was seen. And he was seen. And he was seen. And that changes Everything that changes everything i could take you through the list of people that are given to us here i'm not going to do that today but from verse 5 to verse 8 it lists some of the people that saw him by the way that's not an exhaustive list it doesn't mention any of the women that saw him it doesn't mention the two men that were on the emmaus road who saw him but these are personal eyewitness accounts of people. It says on one occasion there were 500 people that saw him at one time. Think about this for a moment. That There are those intellectuals who say, well, they all hallucinated the presence of Jesus, like a hologram in their presence. They all hallucinated Jesus. Do you realize how hard it would be to get, it, it, do you realize how impossible it would be to get 500 people to hallucinate the same thing? I can't even get married a hallucinate the same thing with me. They all saw the resurrected Christ, and we could talk about each one of them, but can I tell you about some things that maybe you hadn't thought about? If you want to know whether Jesus arose in a physical body or not, in John chapter 20, verse 17, it says that Mary Magdalene clung to him. Or the other women who had come on that Sunday morning, it says they held him, they were coming to worship him, but it says they held him by his feet. Or you think about Cleopas, one of those that Jesus walked along the road with, he broke bread with them. Or the disciples, without Thomas present, he showed his scars, he ate fish and a honeycomb with them. Or a week later when Thomas is there, he says, Thomas, here, just touch my wounds and see if I'm alive. Touch them. Go ahead. Or down at the Sea of Galilee. You remember down at the Sea of Galilee, the disciples were out fishing, hadn't caught anything, and Jesus told them to let the net down, and they brought up 153 large fish. One of the disciples jumps into the water to swim to the the land because he now knows that this is Jesus. And do you realize that Jesus down there at the Sea of Galilee performed that miracle and then he cooked and ate some of the fish that they caught? Or consider for a moment what he says here again, that there are 500 people at one time who saw him. Jesus is alive. And that changes everything. That changes everything about the way you raise your children. That changes everything about the way you live your life that changes everything about the career that you follow in your life, that changes everything. If Jesus is alive, that means he is God, and that changes everything. Or think about what John said in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. I love 1 John, don't you? John speaking says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. There was no mistaking that Jesus was alive. There was no mistaking. And because Jesus is alive, we have hope. Because Jesus is alive, we can be forgiven. Because Jesus is alive, we can have the promise of eternal life. Actually, I don't know how many there are of these, but let me just walk you through them. Why, why do these particulars of the gospel, what do they mean to me? What do these particulars of the gospel mean to me? Well, number one, they mean that he's God, just as he said. D-d-d- he's no phony. He's no myth. He's no mere man. He is the Messiah. They mean that you have to answer to him one day. Everybody will stand before him one day. They mean that eternal salvation is only through him. He is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. They mean that a Christian's eternal destiny is secure. Oh, I've got to stop here for a moment. This is not about me holding on to him. This is about him and his resurrection power holding on to me. They mean that you should profess him in baptism because he told us to. We should step forward and publicly acknowledge Jesus by being baptized and identifying with him and with his church. They mean that he wants to fellowship with us daily, with you daily. I mean, the living Savior wants to walk with you and talk with you and fellowship with you. And they mean that, the, that he intercedes for you before the Father. Do you realize what Jesus is doing today? You messed up last week, whether you know it or not. You messed up last week, and Jesus is interceding on your behalf. He's your advocate. He's praying for you. Aren't you thankful for that? They mean, these particulars mean that he deserves your unreserved obedience. I mean, if he's God, we should obey him as God. They mean that he is with you and will never forsake you. They mean that you should tell others about him. If he came back from the dead, friends, hey, that's something to talk about. You say, I like to talk baseball and football and golf and history and geography and whatever else you like to talk about, fishing or whatever it is. (laughs) And you can't bring it into a conversation to say, let me tell you something that I haven't told you before, friend. I don't know if I've ever told you that Jesus Christ came back from the dead. Hey, that changes everything. They mean, these particulars mean that he is with you. He'll never forsake you. They mean that you should tell others about him. They mean that what, that what matters to him should matter to you. And they mean that he loved you enough to come for you. And the list can go on. If Jesus is alive, friends, that changes everything. I want to bring you back to Andy Stanley's book. The very end of his book is another section that I want to read to you. I want you to listen carefully. This is Andy Stanley writing. When I hear Christians and church leaders in the United States complain about the obstacles the church faces today, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Obstacles? Seriously? What kind of obstacles? When compared to the insurmountable challenges faced by first and second century believers, our obstacles are laughable. The secularization of America, moral decline, loss of religious liberty, Hollywood's mischaracterization of Christians that's it. Imagine voicing those complaints to a handful of first-century Roman Christians huddled in the back room of a second-floor apartment reading a portion of Matthew's Gospel by candlelight, the only scrap of Scripture they possessed. Imagine transporting the folks who've abandoned faith for all the wrong modern reasons back in time to that harrowing era of church history. Imagine how hollow, shallow, or completely nonsensical their arguments would sound to Jesus' followers who had never owned any portion of Scripture but who sat under the teaching of the Apostle Peter himself. Imagine transporting the same group of time travelers to a house church in Corinth or Ephesus. Picture the confused looks they would receive when these modern skeptics Began complaining about the violence depicted in the Jewish scriptures. First century followers of the way weren't put off by violence, they were surrounded by it. Besides, the message of Jesus stood in stark contrast to the bloody, violent methods of empire and temple. Imagine, he says, their surprise once they discovered that these extraordinary people chose to follow Jesus because he offered eternal life and rose from the dead to authenticate his right to make such an outrageous offer. And they believed this because the apostle Paul himself told them so. But enough of imagining, he says, how would we respond? How would you respond This is no fiction. This is the actual, verifiable history of your faith. How would your version of faith hold up under the scrutiny of that mostly illiterate but oh-so-brave generation of Christians? A generation of Jesus followers whose tried and tested faith fueled their conviction that the documents that documented the words and works of Jesus were to be protected at all costs because his was a message for all generations. But listen. So yes, there once existed a version of our faith that rested securely on a single unprecedented event: the resurrection. That's the version he says I'm inviting you to embrace, the original version, the endurance, the, in, the, in, the endurable, uh, defensible, new covenant, new commandment version. We have a faith that won't even get us out of bed on Sunday morning, a faith that if something else is on the agenda that might be more important, we would choose it over choosing the gathering of believers. A faith that doesn't even drive us into his word to read it for what it has to say. We have a faith that when life doesn't go the way we want it to go and it gets hard, that we give up. Well, if you're going to treat me this way, God, hey, our faith should rest on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again. And he was seen and he was seen, and he was seen, and he was seen, and you can interview all of them, and they're going to tell you the same story, as I've already indicated to you repeatedly in this message, tell you the same story over and over, and you can be dense enough to say, you know what, I know that they had to have seen something, but I wasn't there, and I don't know what it was that they saw, therefore I cannot tell you what it is that they saw. Or you can say, you know what, the evidence is so incontrovertible that Jesus is alive and that ought to change everything for me when I don't want to do something that God tells me to do I do it anyway because I know Jesus is alive i ought to love my brother and sisters in Christ because Jesus is alive I ought to be interested in the souls of men and women and being concerned about getting them under the sound of the gospel because Jesus is alive and they're going to have to stand before him. And the only entrance to heaven is through him. Because Jesus is alive. That changes, that changes everything.